If you have ever ridden a horse, you quickly find out that you are not 100% in control of the situation. There are two brains at work. At some point, either you and the horse come to a metaphorical meeting of the minds, or you're in for a bumpy and short-lived ride. But what is this connection between the rider and the horse? What does science tell us about equestrian communication? Hi, this is Charles Blue with the Association for Psychological Science, and you're listening to Under the Cortex. I have with me today Dr. Janet Jones. Would you introduce yourself, please? Yes. Hi, Charles. Um, I'm really happy to be here. I am Janet Jones, and I'm the author of a new book that's called Horse Brain, Human Brain. And um, it uh, uh, applies research on brain science to the training of horses and riders, which is kind of um, uh, an unusual way of using my background in brain science, but a very pleasant way for me. It is an unusual topic for me as well. Typically on this program, we'll talk to people about human cognition and new insights into the way the brain works, at least the human brain. But we're not really talking about the human brain, uh, as as noted, we're going to talk about the human horse brain relationship, which is both your research and your passion. Let's start at the beginning. What led you into this curious investigation? Well, it's partly because I have a very quirky combination of interests that um, has motivated uh, my work throughout my life. I grew up around horses. Uh, competing, training, um, and living with them for most of my early life. And um, for those of your listeners who maybe aren't too familiar with horses, uh, they're huge. So um, uh, the average horse weighs about 1,200 pounds and is extremely strong and super fast. Um, So This creates a situation where training techniques have to be done in a particular way. Uh, If you want a horse to do something, you can't just speak louder or um, take your hands and and mold him into position. And um, because of this, accidents are fairly common. Um, In one horse accident, I suffered a brain injury uh, that left me with transient amnesia for a couple of years. And so during this time, I was able to... There's a topic in and of itself. It is. (laughs) Um, I was able to carry out all my normal activities. Um, So I was riding horses, talking with people, giving lessons, eating lunch, you know, doing everything that we all do. And then all of a sudden, I would become aware of my existence. So this is a very odd um, experience, and these losses of awareness lasted from about a couple of hours, sometimes, to a couple of days. And the whole experience of the transient amnesia continued for about two years. So I had a lot of time and a lot of reason to... um, become fascinated by my brain's ability to keep me functioning normally when I had no awareness of my actions. And I really didn't understand why is it that I am out here behaving in the world in a way that everyone else says is normal for me, and yet I have no awareness whatsoever. 
And we now know, of course, that I just had no memory of it. Um, so because of that, I began reading about human brains. And eventually, I got a PhD from UCLA in cognitive science. Um, went on to become a full professor um, for about 23 years. And then I went back to horse training. And as soon as I went back to horse training on a you know, full-time level, I could suddenly see that a lot of horse and human problems, quote unquote, were actually just differences in how the two species brains worked. And so that's kind of what led to, um, to my interest in trying to apply brain science to horsemanship. Well, then that leads to a very interesting question. So you have studied human brains and horse brains. What are their differences and similarities? Oh, my gosh. There are loads of differences and some similarities. Um, humans have predator brains that emphasize focus, depth perception, uh, goals, intent, planning. Um, judgment. But horses have prey brains, and prey brains emphasize motion detection, uh, peripheral vision, smell, um, avoidance, fear, and instant flight from potential danger. And when you have an animal that is as large and strong as a horse, but still so agile and fast that it can, you know, make huge moves in the blink of an eye. It's really important to understand and be able to anticipate how that horse is going to behave when you work around him. Um, horses do not have prefrontal cortex, so there's no judgment, planning, or evaluation. They have excellent memories, and I've made the argument in my book that, in fact, horses have memories that are more pure than humans, and in many cases, faster to pick up both good habits and bad habits. Their brains are driven by external stimulation, things that are happening out in the world. So when somebody suddenly opens an umbrella or um, jumps out from behind a building, we get really strong um, responses from horses. On the other hand, human brains are driven by internal goals. Um, and another big difference is that equine attention is best at vigilance. So horses are watching all the time and listening and smelling and trying to identify any potential danger in their um, environment, whereas human attention is best at concentration and focus. So those are some of the differences. Um, in terms of similarities, horses have mammalian brains that... Um, function physiologically in much the same way that human brains do. So we still have neurons and cortex and, and subcortical structures and um, uh, electrochemical um, 
responses among neurons that allow for communication and new connections. So there is uh, some overlap, but we're really talking about two very distinct uh, brain structures in many ways. Extremely distinct. And this is interesting to me because, you know, we, we have a lot of attention given, for example, to the relationship between humans and their dogs or their cats. Um, all of which is fascinating and very important because, of course, there are far more people in the world who have uh, dogs and cats than there are who have horses. But humans and horses share a very intriguing form of mutual communication um, that is remarkable for the fact that it occurs between a prey animal and a predator. Let's think about that for a second. We've got these so-called domesticated animals. Research has shown that the natural, original, wild variety of these things may have had different brains or have evolved because of our efforts at crossbreeding and breeding to come up with a more effective uh, species for our needs. So is there a big difference between the horse's mind in its wild state versus the one that's evolved into because of human interference or influence? Um, There are probably some differences there. Selective breeding has a long history in horses. Uh, At least 6,000 years of selective breeding in horses, and some researchers argue that it's as much as 10,000 years. And and I should say, this selective breeding has now created more than 4,000 different breeds of horses, some of which differ remarkably from others, even though they're all considered to be horses. Um, Horses now are domesticated animals. And we have a lot of people um, who talk about wild horses, quote unquote. But that's not really correct in the evolutionary sense. There are no wild horses living on earth at this time. Now, there are horses who live in the wild. Uh, Most of them are abandoned horses. Um, Some of them are the offspring of abandoned horses. Uh, Some are feral. They have never lived uh, outside of a wilderness setting. But all horses are domesticated animals. This is in comparison to something, say, like a zebra, which I have understand that it's possible in some instances to ride one, but it is definitely not a domesticated animal. That is not something that they endure or uh, take lightly. So that might be a better analogy for these original proto-domesticated animals. So there has been some change because of, of human influence on the way they behave and the way they think. There has. And, you know, a lot of that, of course, in an individual horse has to do with the excessive training that we give to horses. Many people don't realize that horses, uh, especially competitive performance horses, usually are in full training for most of their lives. So there is an, an enormous amount of daily work that goes into training these horses to do the things that we want them to do. And you're right about zebras. That's a really um good analogy. And I would just add to that, that um, while it is theoretically possible to throw your leg over and ride a zebra, 
you had darn better be really good at, at, <laughs> at staying on. <laughs> and um, and you're not you you're not going to be able to get that zebra to do too many unusual things, you know. <laughs> so no. uh, it's, it's a different situation. I have no doubt that the domestication of horses has altered their brains in certain ways, but the sensory organs, um, the lack of prefrontal cortex, and some of the other physiological and anatomical differences in horse brains means that they are still prey animals, and they are still ultimately using prey brains uh, and allowing predators to ride them. How does this communication take place? Is there a established reward? You talked about the predator-prey relationship. How can I communicate my desires to a horse in a way that provides the desired outcome? Where does this channel come from? Our primary channel of communication between humans and horses is body language. When we begin training a horse, we mimic many of the body cues that horses use among themselves in herds. If you have an alpha mare, a mare in a group of horses who pretty much runs the show. She will use physical pressure to cause other horses to move away from her food or sometimes away from her water or away from um, other members of the herd. And she will do that by actually pushing her body into their space in one manner or another, and that physical pressure, even if it doesn't require an actual touch, uh, causes the other horse to move away. Well, we can do the same thing as humans. And so that's how we begin training a horse, by using methods that he is comfortable with and knows about from living with his mother and other bulls in his pasture and other uh, other horses. Once that horse can be ridden, we then transfer those physical pressures um, from our full bodies on the ground to imperceptible cues that we give with our legs, seat, hands. Um, We also use tiny shifts in balance and weight distribution. And it turns out that horses are ultra sensitive to touch. So they can pick up all of these tiny little signals and eventually they learn, we teach them, which movements are connected with each signal. When we watch a horse do something, and this might be something really easy, like perhaps take four or five steps backward, or it might be something really difficult, like jump an entire course of fences that are five and a half feet high, there is a constant mutual brain-to-brain communication going on between the horse and the human that most non-riders don't see, and they're not aware that we're doing that. So I'd like to expand a little bit on this brain-to-brain communication because... Yeah, that, um, that is fascinating. I, I was thinking back to uh, something I, I read in the past where... Uh, Certain warrior tribes who used horses uh, were able to do um, archery on horseback, controlling the animal just with their lower body, so their hands were free, which 
to me sounds <laughs> remarkably difficult with my limited horse riding experience. So what, what is this, this, this brain to brain connection? Yeah. So um, basically when we ride horses, we are transmitting signals back and forth between their bodies and ours without the use of language at all. And we do not have to use equipment to do this. Now, sometimes we do use equipment because it allows us to have a more stable position on the horse. So it helps to have a saddle, for example, because it allows you to maintain your balance better. But the horse and the human don't need that saddle for communication between their brains. And when I say brain to brain, I'm talking primarily about horse and human proprioceptive cells. We all have receptor cells in our bodies, throughout our bodies, and they pick up touch and pressure against our skin and against our flesh and muscles in both species. A horse's proprioceptive cells pick up a very gentle pressure of a rider's upper left calf, let's say, and it could be any part of the rider, but something touching the horse, the proprioceptive cells of the horse pick up that gentle pressure and they send it to his brain. His brain interprets it and initiates a learned action. Um, and it's usually a very specific learned action. And that action then is carried through the horse's proprioceptive cells and back to the human rider. Um, and at that point, then the rider's body receives those signals, carries them to her brain, and so on. So we have this constant moment-by-moment -moment loop of proprioceptive activity that is being sent to the horse's brain, to the human brain, back to the horse's brain, and so on. And when you really break that down in neuroscientific terms, it's a pretty interesting thing that horses and humans are doing, again, especially because we're dealing with two very different kinds of brains and two very different species. The interplay that you just discussed is very rider-specific. It seems so subtle that a different rider on a well-trained horse would not be able to communicate as well as the person with whom the horse is most accustomed to riding because those subtle moves could be very different from person to person. Is that a observation or are they horses more able to adjust to the intricacies or differences among the riders? A little bit of both. Horses do adjust to the intricacies of each rider, but um, you are absolutely right that when a brand new rider gets on a horse, even a well-trained horse, that horse has to take some time to figure out okay, that particular, this particular rider's leg is six inches shorter than my usual rider's. So I'm getting all of these signals at a different location in my body. Do they still mean the same thing? Or is there some difference um, that this rider is trying to convey? So there is always that adjustment period. And horses in general do respond best to their trainers or pe the, the people who ride them most often and the people who have taught them these signals. So in your work, what has most surprised you 
in looking into this connection between horse and human? (laughs) I think the thing that has surprised me most, or one of them anyway, is the degree to which horses can smell. Horses have amazing double senses of smell. They have two sensory systems and two separate sensory organs that allow them to pick up scents in their environments. And they have the same number of genes that build olfactory receptor cells, the same number of olfactory axons in their brains, and more olfactory receptor cells than dogs. So people often talk about, of course, the dog's remarkable ability to smell. And of course, we've put dogs to work doing all kinds of things that rely on their fantastic senses of smell. And most people, including horse people, have had no idea in the past that horses have that same capacity for smell. It might even be better. We don't know yet. So that's an area where we still need a lot of uh, research. But because of that, horses can smell all kinds of things about other horses. And when I say that, I should say they can know and identify all kinds of other factors about other horses and about humans just from sniffing them. So we also think about putting blinders on horses. And I grew up in Amish country, Pennsylvania. It was always very common to see the horse and buggy at the side of the road, but the horses always had the blinders to ensure they weren't focusing on things at the periphery. Does that really have an impact? How important is controlling the horse's vision centers when working them in a distracting environment? It's somewhat important because, of course, horses' eyes are set way off on the sides of their heads, and they have a range of view that's about 340 degrees around their bodies. So they can, you know, they can pick up motion, very high-speed motion. In fact, horses' motion detection is so much better than humans that they can pick up high-speed motion that humans are not capable of detecting, even in the areas where humans can see. And so blinders do help in a situation like that. I'm always amazed that Amish horses are capable of managing roads and traffic and all of the things that are going on around them and still focus on the road and continue to move right on straight down the road without becoming frightened. I would add that I think this issue of blinders that you've brought up is also a good example of how human brains and horse brains have to work together and often don't. And what I'm referring to here is the fact that human human brains rely primarily on vision. So about a third of the human brain is devoted to vision. Um, This is not true for horses at all. Vision is a lesser sensory system for the horse than something like smell or touch. I think that probably one of the reasons that horses uh, wear blinders, uh, not only harnessed horses in Amish country like you're referring to, but also it used to be quite common for racehorses to wear blinders. 
And I think one reason for that, frankly, is that humans assume, because of our own reliance on vision, that horses are going to spook primarily from visually related stimuli or stimulation in the environment. And I'm not sure that's entirely true. I think that we have ignored the sense of smell to the degree that we are not paying attention to the fact that horses are probably far more concerned about different scents that they might experience while they're trotting down the road than of the vision. But we put blinders on them because vision is important to us, and we assume that it's therefore very important to the horse, too. So thinking of this human expectations and biological reality, has anything in your research shed light on human cognition? Yes, a lot of it has. And I have found this in my teaching of riding students, that um, once I explain to them certain things about the way that the horse experiences the world, a lot of the so-called problems that people think they have with horses disappear because they realize, oh, okay, the horse sees and hears and smells a completely different, in a completely different way than we do. And what they see is completely different. So their view of the world, both visually and in other ways, is completely different than ours. Most people have probably seen a horse complete a dressage test uh, where you know they remain in a small arena and um, and the horse sort of dances. People often talk about it as being similar to a dance or performs all of these maneuvers um, that are very graceful and elegant and unusual. And some people probably have seen horses leap over a bunch of very high jumps in an arena or out on a cross-country course, kind of like what we see in the Olympics. An awful lot of people assume that the horse is just going around doing all of that and that the human's job is simply to hang on for dear life. But you know, As I do. <laughs> I, I completely understand why people would think that. But in fact, once again, the horse's brain and the human's brain are communicating moment by moment through their bodies to achieve these feats of strength and agility. So how much of horse training is actually teaching the rider or the trainer? <laughs> well, I have to chuckle at that because, oh, so much of horse training is about training the people. Um, I think probably this is true in most animal training. I've watched some dog trainers work with the dog's owner. And it's really kind of a funny situation because, you know, the, the, the dog owner um, is, is constantly using different terms for the dog. So first, you know, it's lie down. And then that dog hops up on a couch and it's get down. And then the dog hops up on a, on a person's legs, you know, stands up on a person's legs. And the owner says, get down, stay down. <laughs> And you can almost see the confusion in the dog's mind as to, you know, this word down is being used in all of these different contexts. And it has a number of different meanings for the dog. And that same thing happens with horses, not so much with language, but with all of these 
these physical pressures that we apply to horses to teach them what we want them to do, that the horse is almost always having to sort through human errors to figure out what that person really wants them to do. So um, as a trainer, much of my work has to do with explaining to people that the pressure from the upper inner calf is very has a very different meaning than pressure from the lower inner calf. And, and that a gentle pressure has one message, but a stronger pressure has a different message and uh, all of that. Uh, so I think you're absolutely right that teaching the rider and the owner what to do is often very difficult. Um, I will add that the people who actually train horses are professionals who have worked with eight or 10 horses a day for decades. And we have learned what works and what doesn't. Teaching non-professionals what to do is challenging. So we have advanced our understanding of this connection between the horse's brain and the human brain, but what's next in your research? What don't we yet understand that we really should? Well, the work that I'm doing right now is very new. This is the first time that brain science has been applied in a, in a thorough way to the horse industry. And the horse industry is responding to it very well. But we still have huge gaps in our understanding. We need more research definitely into the horse's sense of smell. We also need to know more about horses' ability to solve problems. We know that they can solve problems, and sometimes they're extremely good at it. So that's an area for future research. Others would include the potential for observational learning, the horse's use of categorical perception. I don't think horses have much categorical perception, uh, but that remains to be seen. Uh, the horse's desire to seek agency or cause and the positive equine emotions. So we've focused a lot on fear in horses because that's their primary emotion as prey animals. Uh, but there are, I suspect, other equine emotions of a more positive form, and it would be very interesting to learn more about those. And we also have hundreds of human experimental paradigms that we've developed in psychology and neuroscience that could be adapted for use in horses. Um, and I suspect that we will find a lot of surprises by applying those paradigms to horses. My book is the first one ever to explain horse brains, and it's the first to bring together horse and human brains. And it's just, um, it's our first step into this research area. And so I really hope that researchers, young researchers and scientists will begin to dive into this and try to learn a lot more about what's going on between horses and humans. Certainly fascinating area, not something I had ever considered previously, but now feel much better informed. And I'd like to thank you for your time today and explaining a little bit more about the interesting and correlation between the human and the horse and the brain and how they interact and really did enjoy speaking with you today. Okay, I've really enjoyed talking with you too, Charles. Thank you, Charles. <laughs>